The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 15th, 2019. On this week's show, Ethan Strauss of The Athletic will join us to talk about the latest on the NBA and China, with LeBron James the latest to make everyone angry by saying something dumb. The Ringers, Ben Lindbergh, will also be here to discuss the baseball playoffs and to assess the claim that the balls used in the playoffs are not flying as far as they did in the regular season. Have they been doctored? Those baseballs we'll discuss. Finally, author Ed Caesar will chat with us about a pair of marathon records, Elliot Kipchoge cracking the two-hour barrier and Bridget Koske shattering the women's world record. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis, author of the book's Word Freak and a few seconds of panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi, Josh. The two-hour marathon barrier mm-hmm. has been breached. Mm-hmm. You'll be breaking it tomorrow. The psychological barrier. It's, it's all psychological. I broke a personal barrier over the weekend in old man softball. This is old man softball update. I hit a three-run homer in my first at-bat in the first inning and a grand slam in my second at-bat in the second inning. So the psychological barrier was that you didn't think you could You've had three run homers and grand slams in separate games, but never in the same one. I went seven for nine. It was kind of a <laughs> route. But they were hit over the outfielder's heads, which is the barrier for me. Pull I the don't pitcher, usually man. hit the Pull ball the over people's heads. We're doing a live show, Stefan. We are. We announced it last week. We are going to announce it this week. We might even announce it the next week and the week after that. But there's a but. It's not an and. And come to the live show. It's going to be very fun. It's going to be in D.C., ask people who've been before. It's always a good time. People do not leave disappointed. That's at the Hamilton Live, great venue, Tuesday, December 3rd. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live, and we'll have some announcements soon about special guests. Special guests. Maybe I shouldn't overpromise and underdeliver. Yeah. There will be guests Tuesday, December 3rd, at DC, at the Hamilton, slate.com slash live. On Sunday night in Los Angeles, LeBron James, back from his trip to China with the Lakers, made his first public comments about Rockets general manager Daryl Morey's Stand with Hong Kong tweet and the ramifications thereof. Let's listen to what LeBron had to say. We, we all talk about this freedom of speech. Yes, we all do have freedom of speech. But at times, there are ramifications for the negative that can happen um, when you're not thinking about others. You know, you're only thinking about yourself. So um, I don't believe... I don't want to get into a, a, word, a, a word or sentence uh, feud with Daryl, um, with Daryl uh, Morey, but I believe he wasn't educated on, on, on the situation at hand, and, um, and he spoke. And uh, so many people uh, could have been harmed, um, not only financially, but physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, so just be careful what we, what we tweet and we say and what we do, even though, yes, we do have freedom of speech, but there can be um, a lot of negative that comes with that. After LeBron got criticized for that statement by everyone with an internet connection, he then sent two clarifying tweets. Number one, let me clear up the confusion. I do not believe there is any consideration for the consequences and ramifications of the tweet. I'm not discussing the substance. Others can talk about that. And then tweet number two from LeBron. My team and this league just went through a difficult week. I think people need to understand what a tweet or statement can do to others. And I believe nobody stopped and considered what would happen. Could have waited a week to send it. Joining us now is a guy who always stops and considers what would happen, no matter what the what is. 
It's Ethan Strauss from The Athletic. Hey, Ethan. Yeah, and I, I don't ever tweet anything interesting. That's part of a strategy. How are you doing, guys? Doing well. Uh, LeBron said a dumb thing. Then he tweeted a couple of things that uh, were not like significantly less dumb. This is not standard practice for LeBron. He's usually pretty savvy about these sorts of things. But uh, I guess he's in good company. A lot of people in the NBA and NBA affiliates have said dumb stuff about China in the last uh, couple of weeks. Isn't that right? Yes. Yeah. And I would add, I would add, and this might shock a few listeners, but LeBron uh, espoused the majority position within the NBA. I mean, within the NBA, we're talking players, coaches, GMs, owners. There is a lot of anger towards Daryl Morey. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a highly involved myopic world, sports is, where you're, you're not necessarily rewarded for non-normative outside interests. Um, and in this case, the interest is causing chaos and financial disaster. So I, I know I'm generalizing, but I, I don't think that this cohort generally can even envision caring about something like Hong Kong beyond the most abstractive ways. Well, the one guy who seems to have envisioned it is Ennis Cantor. That's the only guy, at least at the hour we're recording this, who came out and kind of criticized LeBron, if only obliquely. And, you know, Cantor, who's been in a years-long fight with Erdogan in, in Turkey, is, I think, the only person in the NBA right now who can truly understand how uh, kind of craven, uh, you know, his his colleagues are being. Well, yeah, and I think here is what the NBA writ large is missing, in my opinion. And they can't or at least couldn't fathom how poisonous this looks at home. And a lot of people don't. We're at a very interesting moment that people within the NBA just have no idea about, which is that China's popularity is nosediving within the United States. It's been going that way. It's been a slow drip, drip, drip. There has been American unease about China for eons, but there seems to have been a watershed. And I'm looking at a 2017 Pew poll uh, that says that 44% of Americans had a favorable view of China in 2017. Uh, two months ago, that number plummeted to 26%. And that's not even counting the recent Michigas, where it's probably even worse. And so the NBA is in this position, and I, I talk to people, and they bitch about Maury, they whine about Maury, it's all they can talk about, and they don't quite understand that they might be, I don't know, like if the NHL partnered with the Soviet Union in the 1960s. They can't even see what this looks like. I think they're going to get hit pretty hard. They're going to be surprised by it. And I, look, I can't predict the future, but I think a lot of people in my industry, they're almost so cynical as to be naive, where they go, nobody really cares about this. It's all fake outrage. I think they're wrong. I think ratings are going to drop first month at least. Let's take a step back for a second and just acknowledge how bizarre this entire chain of events is. I mean, this is really a, butterf a, a butterfly flaps its wings and there's a fucking monsoon somewhere in the world. Daryl Morey, you know, blindly, like a billion other people, decided to basically hit retweet on something and thoughtlessly did that and has created this I mean, billion dollar problem for the NBA that has it, it also at the same that. time, it could be more than that, that has also, though, revealed and brought to the forefront a conversation about the ethics of doing business with totalitarian regimes, which, of course, sports have been doing forever. 
I want to get back to the LeBron part, but let's just talk about that for a minute. It's a bizarre butterfly effect. It's completely crazy that this domino knocked over the other dominoes. And it could be even bigger than losing billions. This could be important historically in a, in a Franz Ferdinand-esque way. You know, this, is, this feels very watershed. And I don't think it's just about doing business with totalitarian regimes. It's the idea of China wanting to rule over us and determine what we talk about in the United States. I think that's the part that really gets at people. And I think people are alarmed when they see James Harden or LeBron effectively groveling to China. It's, wait a second, what, what happened to my country kind of feeling. I agree that within the United States, there isn't a whole lot of concern for Hong Kong or the Uyghurs or any of the other human rights abuses that are happening within mainland China. But this new world where China uses its top-down authoritarian control of the economy to get corporations to fire you for saying anything about them is alarming. And it's something that has been happening a little bit beneath the surface. And suddenly, we're just seeing a public display of it all. And it's clarified the issue. So, yeah, I I can't believe that it happened this way. Maybe it was inevitable, but who knew that a retweet would cause it? The thing that I think grates on me and I think on the American people, I can speak for the American people on this issue, is the lack of honesty. And like when you have Steve Kerr talking like he's a pod person um, and saying, you know, Steve Kerr, and, and you wrote about this, Ethan, in a, a really good piece for The Athletic, talking about how, you know, when he met Reagan after his father was assassinated in the Middle East, and how, you know, even if Reagan didn't care if you were a Republican or a Democrat, he had respect for the office, and he said all of the right things in that moment, and to see the office, like, desecrated in the way that Trump has. Like, everything that, that Kerr said was very, like, silver-tongued and correct, and you're, like, nodding along. And then when it gets to China, he's like, it's very complicated and I'm not going to speak on this and I'm going to like stay in, in my lane. Like I think people would respect it and appreciate it, whether it was coming from Kerr or coming from LeBron James, if it was either a straight no comment without the it's complicated part or if it was, you know, Space Jam 2 is coming out. It's going to be distributed <laughs> in China. It's a business proposition for me. It's not a moral one. Or if Kerr said, I just literally am not allowed to say anything about this right. because of the financial yeah. ramifications or because the NBA has told us, like, they're just lying. They're, it's, a, it's sometimes a sin of uh, omission. Sometimes it's a sin of commission. But they're all lying. Right. They are all lying. And... On the one hand, I think it is perfectly fine for LeBron James not to have an opinion about pro-democracy movements in Hong Kong or human rights abuses in China and still sell his movies and shoes over there. This is the way of this particular world. It sucks. Maybe saying, fuck China, no NBA games, no nothing until you resolve all of your geopolitical problems. I don't think that's realistic. Um, The second part of that is that there's this expectation that LeBron James and his fellow NBA players are to be sinologists. Look, they got ripped for talking about things that they actually live in experience. And that has created an expectation that they should also talk about things about which they know absolutely nothing. They and they that. feel they obligated that, right? well, by the president. I mean, you know, uh, who's the president? Yeah. Screw that guy. There is a cohort of people, as I, as I wrote about, who care more about scoring a point um, on the NBA and Steve Kerr than making a point sure. and are delighting 
they're delighting in people that they perceived as attempting to be their moral arbiters, actually having no morality. Uh, but that doesn't really get us anywhere. I mean, it's frustrating to me how much of the internet is driven by this this hunt for hypocrisy. And I don't I don't know what the end game is. I don't know what we're trying to do. Okay, I proved you're a hypocrite. Uh, now what? I mean, we're all hypocrites in some way. We're going to fail to live up to our standards. Does that mean that we are failures overall? Does that mean that we're bad people and never had a smart thought? It's just not. I, I, I don't. I don't like that perspective. And even if there is an argument for. Well, you talked about all these things. What about the other thing? Um, I get it, but I'm with Josh. The main problem is the line. That's the main problem. It's insulting to our intelligence. If they go up there and they say no comment, maybe they get some criticism. Maybe Trump tweets at them once. But it, they're not debasing themselves and debasing all of us of having to go through this whole charade where, um, oh, I'm going to talk about how complicated it all is, which, by the way, is the message China wants out there, that this is all so complicated and nobody from the outside could possibly right. make any kind of judgment about it. Well, that's not just China. That was, that was Joe Tsai's reaction message to, to everybody. Yeah, that's their talking points. I find it to be completely unethical to spread that particular perspective and then not back it up because you're still under fear of their censorship. That's something you should not be doing. That's wrong. I guess LeBron, if you like listen to what he said, he got like kind of 65% of the way to being honest about this and saying like, Maury screwed us over financially. And that, you know, I think in the closed door meeting the players had with Adam Silver in China, the players are pissed off that they had to deal with the repercussions of this and they're going to be asked about it. It's the most NBA player that I've ever heard, by the way. I was I was laughing when I saw that initial report because NBA players are as a cohort, and maybe if I was an NBA player, I would understand, but they're the most put upon cohort in the league who often have an umbrage of the things they have to do and they might have to be forced to do a bunch of stuff and and, and, and perhaps but it's just very uh just the myopia the narcissism uh collectively of oh you know i we had a tough week <laughs> it's true like it's true i think we would feel annoyed at having to have been there that week but just the let them eat cake attitude of we had a tough week was just hilarious to me. <laughs> I want to follow up on your reaction to what I just said, Josh, and then move on to something else. But, you know, was I making faces? Are you? you were to say that LeBron and other NBA players weren't criticized for taking stands over police violence or Tamir Rice or whatever. It's kind of ignores like 50 years of of African-American activism in sports and the attempts to do that. And I think that you have to frame it in that context. There's an expectation that LeBron James has opinions about things that at least he is aware of. Look, it's conflicted. He's a billionaire, right? He's going to be a billionaire if he's not a billionaire right now. Shouldn't we really be talking about, if we're so concerned about human rights in China, is how did the NBA get there? Who were the owners and the commissioners and the executives who decided to compartmentalize China's human rights abuses and their political structure and sacrifice them for, like every American, other American and international company, at the altar of, of expanding your business. I mean, shouldn't that be the conversation here? It should be part of the conversation. But there is a naked hypocrisy here, even if I'm saying that I don't want the pointing out of it to be the end game. But if you make your slogan, hashtag more than an athlete, and you talk about how uh, an injustice anywhere is an injustice everywhere, 
Um, again, I think people could abide you keeping your mouth shut or no comment and continuing to make your money in China. But when you assail Daryl Morey for doing so and say that he wasn't educated on the situation, I mean, people, it's, it's, it's fair for people to point that out. Well, yeah. It's fair for them to point out the incongruity. And I think that you're right about the history of athlete a- activism in that context. The flip side of that is that whether it's with uninterrupted or more than an athlete or the shop, the barbershop show, I think LeBron's personal brand that he has cultivated and spent uh, lots of money and FaceTime establishing is this idea that he's real and honest and raw and that he says what he thinks on all of these issues, damn the consequences. And I think that actually that's not true. I think there's not damn the consequences. And, and you know, it's you'd be naive to think that that was the case. But if LeBron, as we've seen here, if there's an issue where it doesn't benefit him personally, if the pros and cons and the balance doesn't weigh on the side of it being a good thing for him to say, then he won't say it. That doesn't mean that the things that he does say aren't the right things to say most of the time or aren't brave a lot of the time. But it's not like they're brave and they're going to cost him billions of dollars. Like, I, I don't think anybody has, uh, you know, not even Daryl Morey. Like, he didn't say what he said about Hong Kong thinking I'm going to say this and it's going to cost the NBA billions of dollars. Like nobody is, has done that. And, you know, I want to circle over to ESPN, Ethan, where you used to work. And I think if we're thinking about who looks the worst in all of this, like you could say athletes, you know, even if they profess that they're going to speak out, it's not like it's in their job description. It's not like you're picked to go in the NBA and it's like, all right, you've got to like work on your, your three uh, you got to be a three and D guy and, and also <laughs> defend uh, democracy. Three and diplomacy. <laughs> three and diplomacy. That's it. Thank you for helping me out there. But like if you work at ESPN and you call yourself a journalist and you're told by your bosses, as Laura Wagner reported in Deadspin, that you're not allowed to talk about, you know, politics and and Hong Kong and China uh, and you don't tell the people that you're uh, reporting this to, you don't tell your audience that seems like it is a dereliction of duty. Uh, perhaps it is. It is a complicated situation, to quote Steve Kerr, <laughs> when you've got Tencent involved in your company and part of your company. <laughs> I mean, this is something that I guess a lot of people didn't see coming. Well, so this is complicated. The, the China thing is not complicated. This is this is complicated. I mean, I've got a lot of colleagues back at ESPN, <laughs> you know, friends, and it's very complicated. Bristol, Many the Bristol points. shock collar is uh, is firing. Yeah, right it's now. like I, I won't, you know, I, and, I, and I can't get into why it's complicated. <laughs> <laughs> but you should all know it's complicated. I mean, look, I'm not going to get in a war of words with anybody on it. No. Um, I mean, it's just a conflict of interest. It's not very complicated. Uh, but if I am looking at the perspective of the people who started all of this, as Stefan has said, with the NBA, I do think that the people who got involved in doing business in China could have rationalized it to themselves. I mean, it was about the money. That was the primary motivation. But the moral compromises, I think they told themselves, look, this is going to open them up and it's going to liberalize them and it's going to make them more like us. Well, that's the hubris of international sports organizations and the NBA is not that much different from FIFA or, or the IOC. It's not just sports organizations. A lot of, a lot of businesses thought that they were going to change China. 
And there's this other thing, too, where, I mean, they kind of want to abandon the U.S. in some ways for for China, because perhaps the biggest economy in the world, the one with the exploding middle class. I mean, that's not happening in the United States and China. uh, People are joining the middle class and getting wealthier within the middle class every day. And so they look around, they see this country, perhaps, and they say, hey, there's no growth potential here. But over here in China, oh, man, there's so much growth potential. The issue is it comes with a lot of uh, moral compromises and apparently a lot of strings attached because it doesn't function like our economy functions. The government can effectively wipe out entire industries with the snap of the fingers, which gives them incredible leverage over you, which is why Marriott is doing things like firing a guy for liking a tweet from a Tibetan nationalist group, you know, when he had no way of knowing that that was even an issue and they're just completely bending to the whims of the regime. Um, So, I, I, I don't I don't come at this like some sort of um, pious person uh, assailing the morality of those who got involved in all this business. I think it was a, a moral mistake and potentially a strategic mistake. Uh, but I could at least understand what they told themselves to get into this mess, I guess I would say. Ethan Strauss writes for The Athletic. He's a hypocrite, but we all are, so it's OK. Thanks, Ethan. Thanks for having me, guys. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Major League Baseball players hit more home runs in the 2019 regular season than in any of the 143 seasons that preceded it. I thought you were going to say, than in the 143 previous seasons combined. combined. (laughs) That's next. That's going to happen in 2020. They hit 6,770 homers, 665 more than the previous record, which was set in 2017. But in the playoffs so far, the story has been pitching, and no pitching has been better than that of the Washington Nationals. Nationals in the first three games of the National League Championship Series. Nats pitchers have allowed a total of one earned run while striking out 34 batters and walking just three. That's really good. I think our next guest, Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, can back me up there. Ben is also the co-author of two books. The only rule is it has to work. And most recently, The MVP Machine. Welcome back, Ben. In my expert opinion, I agree. That is pretty good. All right, we're done here. All right, the Nats are on an insane run. They've won 15 of their last 17 games. They've, as the Washington Post noted on Monday morning, they've eliminated the Phillies, the Indians, the Brewers, and the Dodgers, and are one win from doing the same thing to the St. Louis Cardinals. This is not what Nats fans, players, or management would have imagined in May when the team had a record of 19-31, and which was the fourth worst in baseball. Yes, of course, since May, I think they have the best record in baseball. So this is not something that has happened overnight, but it is unusual for a team to start as slowly as the Nationals did and still make it to this point. And they had the talent coming into the year. It was that they had some injuries. They had some bad luck go against them early in the season. And if you looked at the projection systems, which are based on the talent of the players or the projected talent of the players, they never really lost faith in the Nationals, even when they were off 
off to such a slow start, even though they were trailing in their division. The projection system still said, yeah, pay attention to this team. This is still actually a good team. And it turned out that over the long run, that was actually the case. So they've played a lot better. They have a really great rotation and they have showed that in October thus far. So it was Anibal Sanchez in game one of the NLCS with a no-hitter into the eighth. It was Max Scherzer in game two with a no-hitter through six innings. In game three, it was Steven Strasburg who was getting the Cardinals to just swing and miss at off-speed stuff all game long. And um, I want to talk about Strasburg uh, in particular. He has now been one of the best postseason pitchers (laughs) in history. Mm -hmm. And before this season, I think... People who are like followed the game really closely and aren't as kind of anchored on narrative would look at Strasburg and say, like, he's actually been a really, really good pitcher since he was the number one overall pick. But there was still the story about him that he'd been a disappointment. He had, you know, sat out when the Nats had a chance to make the World Series in 2012. He missed a lot of time due to injury. Just the kind of distance between the reality of Strasburg and that story about him is just like getting more and more distant as this postseason has gone well, along. The part you didn't even mention, Josh, is the way he was perceived as a human being, that he was sort of tight-lipped and and dour and well, not engaged true. with the public. <laughs> but Howie Kendrick on Monday night after the Nats won game three was all like, oh, Strasburg's a, he's a barrel of monkeys in the clubhouse. Love that yeah. dude. <laughs> Some guys are different when the cameras aren't on. But yes, I, I think the hopes were so high for Strasburg that that's kind of overshadowed everything he's accomplished. He was a number one draft pick. He was one of the top pitching prospects of all time in an era when people were really well-schooled on prospects. So it, it wasn't like in the past where someone would get drafted and then you wouldn't even think about him until he showed up. With Strasburg, it was like every one of his minor league starts was an event. And then his major league debut was a huge event. And they were even talking about that on the broadcast on Monday. Like everyone remembers where they were when Steven Strasburg made his debut in 2010. And he looked so dominant, so unhittable then. And then, of course, he missed some time with injury. He had Tommy John surgery. He went through the famous shutdown, which you alluded to in 2012 when he was literally shut down for the rest of the season because of workload concerns and because he was coming back from that injury. And that really has kind of dominated the narrative about his career, even though he's been great. Like his whole career, he's never had a bad season. He perhaps hasn't been the best pitcher in baseball, and that's the future that was envisioned for him. And so I guess anything short of that is sort of seen as a disappointment. But at this point, the postseason track record that he has compiled is really, really impressive. And he's been durable since the injury, so he's putting together quite a career, and there's a good chance that he will opt out of his contract this offseason, and then we'll hit the free agent market at what seems like the perfect time. More broadly about pitching in the postseason, starters have gone seven innings in 12 of the 24 games so far, and that is not something, again, that I think that most people would have envisioned before the playoffs began. Yeah, that's been probably the most surprising aspect of the postseason, or second most, maybe. We'll, we'll get into the ball in a second. But in the past few years, we've seen this dramatic difference between how teams handle their pitchers in the regular season and the postseason. Teams realize that, oh, we should really be aggressive in the postseason, and the schedule allows us to be because there are more off days, so we can kind of concentrate all of our innings in the hands of our best pitchers. And so for the past few years, we've seen teams use their relievers, their bullpen about 20% more in the postseason than in the regular season. 
And that trend, if anything, seemed to be accelerating. And then we get to this year where suddenly teams are using their starters as much during the postseason as they did during the regular season. And it's kind of confounding. It's partly that the starters have just pitched a lot better. They've done really well. Maybe that's partly because of the ball and because scoring is down. So they're getting longer leashes. But it's really striking to see the percentage of innings pitched in the postseason by relievers, by starters, almost identical to what it was in the regular season. And you mentioned that we've seen these longer outings. Last year in the entire playoffs, the Max was 108 pitches. That was the most any starter threw in a single game. This year, we've already seen seven starts of 109 pitches or more. And as my podcast partner, Sam Miller, pointed out, we've seen starters face guys the third or fourth time through the order more times already this postseason than we have in the past. So it's very strange. There's been this growing understanding that starters decline in effectiveness as the game goes on because of this familiarity effect. And so there's been this analytics-driven movement to get these guys out of the game sooner. And now that seems to have gone away for at least one postseason, which is surprising, is strange, but is also sort of nice from a spectator perspective, because as much as it might, might make sense analytically to pull starters earlier, it's kind of a bummer to be watching a game and then have to see a parade of relievers and guys just coming in for an inning at a time, as opposed to that old school pitcher stool, which we've gotten an awful lot this October. Well, there are some teams, I guess a lot of teams that make it to the playoffs. The reason that you make it there is that you're deep and versatile and you can win in a bunch of different ways. The Nationals are not that. No. <laughs> they need to win exactly. And the only way they can win is the way that they've been winning with their starting pitchers going deep into games. Games, and sometimes they're starting pitchers coming in to relieve their other starting pitchers. And so they're really threading this needle and threading it very well. Um, and, you know, they have game four coming up uh, on the day we're recording this on, on Tuesday against the Cardinals. And if they're able to shut them down and, and sweep the series, they'll will be a virtuous cycle here where they can just set up their starting pitching again for the World Series and try to run it back and do the same thing one, one more time. Right. And more than half of their playoff innings to this point have come from Strasburg and Max Scherzer, which is pretty good if you can get two of the best pitchers in baseball pitching most of your innings and then supplementing those with Patrick Corbin, who's good, and a couple of effective relievers. Anibal Sanchez is a little harder to explain how he <laughs> took a, a no-hitter into the eighth. That's maybe more on the Cardinals, but I think that they've done the best they can with the personnel that they have. And and we have seen a bunch of postseason teams this year who have really great rotations. The Dodgers, of course, who the Nationals beat, but they had a great rotation. The Astros have a great rotation. So it varies by the team. The Yankees, for instance, are more of a bullpen-centric team, and they have handled their staff that way. Well, two things there. One is that maybe we shouldn't be so surprised when the starters who are going into the postseason are named Scherzer and Strasburg and Garrett Cole and Verlander. You're going to, theoretically, <laughs> managers should have confidence in them being allowed to pitch into the sixth, seventh inning. And to your point that it is more pleasing aesthetically, you know, uh, uh, exhibit number one would have to be the last Yankees-Astros game in the American League Championship Series. The Yankees, right. I mean, that game lasted about 19 hours. The Yankees pitched about 19 of the players. And it was not a fun game to watch. It was tense. It was close. The pitching was good, but it absolutely lost a lot of its energy because of the parade of relief pitchers, particularly for the Yankees. 
Yeah, definitely. It's a big disparity in styles. And I wrote this last offseason, this trend toward bullpenning. It makes a lot of sense, statistically speaking, but there is something to be said for just these two workhorses going toe-to-toe for seven or eight innings. And we've gotten to see that a, a whole lot this offseason, uh, this postseason. And you're right that there are starters who would sort of make sense that they would be going deep into games. But of course, that's always the case when good teams make the playoffs. Good teams tend to have good starters, good starting rotations on the whole. And yet we've still seen this trend toward more relievers because no matter how good the starting pitcher is, he still does tend to get worse as he faces guys right. three or four times through the game. So, And managers you, start to think differently as we get as they get into the fifth, sixth inning. Right. And if you have very good relievers on hand, then generally the fresh reliever is going to be better than even your ace starter if he's compromised by that familiarity effect or fatigue. And yet we've seen teams stick with those starters, which could be very well because they have not allowed as many runs. And that is partly because the ball seems to be different. Yeah. So the recent piece you wrote for The Ringer started out as kind of counterfactual history or Dodgers fan fiction, (laughs) where you wrote about this fly ball that Will Smith hit for the Dodgers in game five of the division series against the Nats, uh, against Daniel Hudson. And if that ball had carried a few feet further, we would be having a totally different conversation right now. The Dodgers would have won the series. We would maybe be setting up for a Dodgers-Astros uh, all-time amazing uh, great team World Series. But slash the ball, Yankees. But, slash Yankees, <laughs> sure, seven. Uh, but that ball didn't carry. It got caught at the warning track, and the Dodgers did not win that series. As you wrote in your piece, Ben, there is uh, a lot of statistical evidence to suggest that baseballs are not flying as far as they did in the regular season. So this is not just a flight of of fancy. Um, There is reason to suspect that maybe this ball could have or should have carried further. Can you walk us through that data and and what we know about um, the baseballs in the playoffs? Yes. So there is some good evidence here. For the first week or so of the playoffs, there was a lot of anecdotal observation. And I was thinking, gee, it doesn't seem like the ball is carrying quite as well because we were conditioned by this all-time high home run season to think that every fly ball off the bat was going to go over the fence. And suddenly it seemed like that wasn't the case. And then Rob Arthur, who is a writer for Baseball Prospectus and an occasional collaborator of mine, he ran a study that was published last week that looked at the drag of the baseball. It's air resistance, essentially. And you can infer that from Major League Baseball's data that's out there publicly by looking at how the ball moves and how it slows on the way from the mound to home plate. So looking at pitches, if the ball's drag is higher, if it has more air resistance, then it will slow down more on its way from the pitcher's hand to the catcher's glove. And so you can then infer that it has higher drag or lower drag. You can't necessarily tell why, but you can tell whether it's carrying or whether it's not. And of course, over the hundreds of feet that a fly ball will travel, that makes more of a difference than it does over the 60 feet, six inches between the mound and home plate. So Rob found that the drag, which was in the years for which we have data at historic lows during this regular season, explaining why we saw so many home runs then had spiked suddenly and dramatically when the playoffs start. And this is perplexing because as MLB insists, the ball is the same. All that's different is the stamp on it that says postseason instead of regular season. The league put out a statement saying it's the same sort of batch of balls. There isn't any difference here. Although it did acknowledge that the drag can vary from 
time to time, which is something that a commission of scientists that MLB had put together last year found. They concluded that the drag of the ball was responsible for a lot of these home run, high home run rates that we've been seeing. And so very suddenly, strangely, mysteriously, the ball's drag, which was so low, has spiked back up again. And all of a sudden, the ball is not carrying as well in the postseason, not just because the pitching is better, not just because the temperatures are colder. Those are factors. But even accounting for all of that, the ball is just not carrying as well. And so we are now seeing all of these fly balls that are dying on the warning track, where because this research and this data is out there, fans are now looking around and going, well, would that have been a home run two weeks ago and questioning kind of the conditions of the game at the time when the stakes are the highest. So we've seen this fluctuation from season to season in home run rates over the past few years. And now we're seeing it within a season and at the most important point of the season, which looks very bad for MLB, whether it's intentional or not. The mystery of why is real, it seems. Um, It doesn't seem to be as much mystery about what's happened in the last few years. I was particularly intrigued by this study that uh, Meredith Wills did. She took apart a bunch of baseballs, and this was not part of the MLB Blue Ribbon Scientific Committee. And she took them apart and discovered that the laces used to stitch together the seams in 2016 and 2017 balls were nine inches thicker than those on 2014 balls. And that's a lot. That's a lot Mm -hmm. of tensile strength. um, And it's going to affect the way balls drag and the way they spin. Um, So that's one fascinating factor. And the mystery here, though, Ben, seems to be like if we can't, how do we explain this? Could it be the composition? If it's not the composition, could it be the leather? Could it be the mud from the Delaware River that's used to? They claim it's the same. It's literally the same batch of But baseballs. there has to be something. So if there was one thing that you would point your finger to, what would it be? A conspiracy to set aside a bunch of, you know, hundreds of more tightly wound or differently constructed baseballs for the postseason? I mean, what, what could it be? Yeah, if you wanted to come up with the innocent explanation, it would just be some sort of manufacturing variation or maybe MLB ran out of the balls it was using during the regular season and went back to an earlier batch that was still lying around, something like that. Even the non-nefarious explanations for this just make MLB look kind of incompetent because the most important piece of equipment in their sport in that scenario is just varying wildly and they can't explain it and they can't control it or predict it, which is not great because teams are constructing their rosters based on what they think the offensive environment is going to be. Players are adjusting their approaches based on whether they think a ball in the air is going to be rewarded or not. And fans, of course, are getting conditioned to expect a certain brand of baseball depending on whether the ball is traveling or not so it doesn't look great if it's just out of their control now the conspiracy theories would say that mlb responded to a low in scoring and home runs in 2014 by juicing the ball in 2015 which is when we saw the first spike and that maybe they feared that it was getting out of hand that we were going to see some embarrassing scenario in the playoffs where some weekly hit ball that was clearly just a product of the juiced ball would decide a a pivotal game or pivotal series and that would sort of be a stain on the sport that it was really dependent on the ball more so than the players and so you could come up with a scenario where they said well we have to rein this in a little bit and maybe we'll just 
try it out in the playoffs and we'll see how that goes. And then maybe next year we'll have a, a ball that's back to normal, that sort of thing. But MLB's messaging on this has been very vague and inconsistent going back four years now to when this home run rate first spiked. At first, they said there was no difference in the ball. It had nothing to do with the ball. Then as the public research piled up showing that that just wasn't plausible, they acknowledged and they put together this committee of scientists and they said, okay, it seems like something is different about the ball, but it's not intentional that it does seem to have changed the drag, but we don't know why. And we're putting together this committee of scientists to figure it out. Those scientists, even when they put together their study that said it's the drag that's doing this, they couldn't pinpoint what it was that was causing that reduced drag. So there was still some mystery. And then earlier this year, Rob Manfred, the commissioner, said we're going to reconvene this committee of scientists. We're going to study it again. We're going to try to get some answers. And then maybe we will make changes based on those answers. But he came out and said that we're not going to do anything unless it's public. We're going to be transparent about any change we make to the ball. So if it's discovered that that was not the case, then that would reflect very poorly on him. And there is precedent in Japan's highest level league where there was a secret change made to the ball and the commissioner ultimately ended up resigning when that became public. Ben Lindbergh writes for The Ringer. Comes on our podcast once in a while, talks on his own podcast, also writes books. The only rule is it has to work and the MVP machine. Ben, thank you again for joining us. Always happy to be here. All right. I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Ethan Strauss of The Athletic will be back with us, and he will talk about his contrarian view that the NBA, even if you don't consider this China stuff, is uh, in a worrisome spot domestically. Viewership is down, um, despite all of the claims that the NBA is the most popular league in the U.S. is at its cultural high point. Ethan uh, has some concerns. If you want to hear those concerns, if you want to hear a conversation about them, and you are not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up. It's just $35 for the first year. And you can do that. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. In a verdant park on a cool morning in Vienna, Eliud Kipchoge of Kenya on Saturday shattered one of the great numerical barriers left in sports. He ran a marathon in less than two hours. Kipchoge's time of one hour, 59 minutes and 40 seconds won't count as an official record because the event, like another attempt by Kipchoge in 2017, was carefully designed to optimize conditions to crack the mark. Regardless, a human being ran 26 miles and 385 yards in less than two hours, and that is remarkable and very cool. Ed Caesar witnessed Kipchoge's feat in Vienna. He writes for The New Yorker and is the author of Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. He joins us from Manchester, England. Hey, Ed. Hello. Thanks for being here. Uh, everybody understandably caveats Kipchoge's feet with the extensive and costly scientific preparation that was undertaken to optimize his chances. We'll get to all of that, but let's start with the romance of two hours. I mean, the marathon distance is pretty arbitrary, and not to get too metaphysical, so is the way we mark time. How did this become a goal for human physiological achievement? I think our brains just cleave to round numbers in this way. If you look at any big city marathon, most people finish in, you know, a cluster around like 310, 
3.30. It's just the way our brains work. You know, we like to break these somewhat arbitrary barriers. The marathon is a very scruffy distance. Two hours is, you know, we can't time the way that we do. But for about 20 or 30 years, people have started thinking about whether a, a two-hour marathon is even possible. And I think it, you know, it, what happens is as soon as a few people start talking about it, everyone else starts talking about it. And every time a world record falls, the conversation gets a bit more louder and uh, a bit more heated. So that's what happened in this case. So the original attempt to break the record took place in 2017 on a Formula One racetrack. It was called Breaking Two. Kipchoge finished in two hours and 25 seconds. And he told you at that time, the world is only 25 seconds away. Was it at that moment when it was just 25 seconds away that a kind of psychological barrier was breached, Ed, where Kipchoge himself believed that it was possible? I think that attempt in Monza was really, really important for what happened next. So before Monza, Kipchoge's best time was 2.03.05. And he would admit to you now that the thought of excising three minutes from his marathon best was almost a little too much for him to bend his head around. But having run two hours and 25 seconds, he then thought, oh, maybe I really can do this. And you saw when he broke the world record in Berlin, which was after Monza, you know, he he ripped a huge chunk out of the world record in Berlin with this self-belief that he had. And when he, by the time he got to Vienna, I think there was absolutely no doubt that, that he knew in his head that he could do it. So there were things that helped him get over the line in Vienna. But I think a huge part of it is the psychology. It's crazy how these things work. But you saw it with the four-minute mile. Once one person had broken it, several people who declared it impossible about a month before broke it. And the psychological part, Ed, seems to be that Kipchoge had to go out knowing I have to run, what is it, 440 miles? Is that right? Yeah, I'm a, a metric cat. So um, there was 250 per K, but it's 434 434 mile, per mile. So he knew that. And the breaking two effort in Italy was spearheaded by Nike. They're the scientists and the nutritionists, and they designed the, the system of pace setters that would help him get there. And he didn't get there, but he got damn close, probably closer than he thought, as you said, which gave him the confidence that it was doable. In this case, they sort of built on what Nike had done, and this effort was was bankrolled by uh, this English billionaire. But the, the science of it seems to be the, the most important part seems to be the pacing and the way they created this sort of V formation that was very specific with five runners ahead of Kipchoge, two behind him, and they were shuttling out in and out every five kilometers in this very choreographed manner. Um, they had these aerodynamics experts, I guess, who designed this uh, to create this bubble around Kipchoge. This all really seemed to work. Were they confident going in that these conditions would give him the, a, a realistic chance of breaking it? And how important was the pace setting part? Yes, they were profoundly confident. I mean, they were, they, they totally rethought the pace setting formation for this attempt. And they had run hundreds of different aerodynamic models and wind tunnels and using this software um, for computational flow dynamics. They were as confident as anyone could be that this was going to work. So that's really interesting in and of itself. The paces were doing two things. You cannot run your fastest marathon unless you run as close to an even split or a slightly negative split. So an even split is when you run the first part of a marathon in the same time as the second half. And a negative split is when you run the second half slightly faster. That's the most effective way to, to run a fast marathon. And they 
decided, the organizers, that running a totally even pace was going to be the quickest way to run as fast as you could. So Kipchoge knew and his team knew that they had to run even splits all the way through. So the pacemaker's job was firstly to keep him on that. But the, but the more important factor was this aerodynamic factor. And uh, talk to us about the shoes. Are the shoes cheating? First explain the shoes, then tell us if they're cheating. The shoes, imagine normal sneakers and then just stick a huge wadge of foam on the bottom of them. And some carbon too, right? And some carbon fiber and a carbon fiber plate. So so these, these are a version of the Vaporfly Next Percent. No, the shoes are not cheating because they're not banned by anyone. They exist within the rules. They do seem to work. They seem to be extremely effective. How effective they are compared to the last set of shoes Kipchoge wore, I don't know, but they're better. The way that I think about this is technology develops inexorably and it exists on a continuum. It's not as if people who are running marathons in 2005 were doing so bare feet. At some point, the world's best marathon runner was going to, with the help of the latest footwear technology and various other things, break two hours. That moment has come because there have been massive advances in footwear technology and also because we've got a once-in-a-generation athlete in his pomp doing it at the same time. And it's just way, you know, the plot on the graph was always going to be dictated by those two factors. The shoes aren't cheating, but I can see why people are stressed about not knowing how much better this performance is than a similar type effort would be, you know, which landed up at 203 or 204 five years ago. And people who have looked at this, like Ross Tucker, the sports scientist in South Africa, they believe there is a substantial advantage here. The, 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 the previous iteration of these shoes were said to have improved performance by 4%. These are supposed to be even better. The last five fastest men's marathons have all been running these vapor flies over the weekend. Bridget Koske. Uh, broke the women's marathon record, killed the women's marathon record wearing these vapor ply shoes. So clearly they're there, but I think you're right. Ed. You know, this is like vaulting poles and synthetic tracks and tennis rackets that allow you to hit the ball 130 miles an hour. Um, technology advances and someone has to be an arbiter, I guess. Steve Magnus, the track coach, said that he thinks that these shoes should be banned at some point or there should be limits placed on them. Maybe that's where we're heading, that there will have to be some sorts of requirements, stipulations limits it could be it could be but when that happens then everyone will know what the rules are just as an observer you know i i, I try not to have a dog in the fight but as an observer just objectively every marathon runner is going to want to run in the fastest shoes i feel like you can't know exactly how much the shoes give to each athlete except to say that they wouldn't be wearing them unless they thought they were quicker <laughs> than the last right. pair so it's developing the technology and it's just this idea about you reach a moment in the development of technology and, and apparel and various other ideas about the marathon that maybe didn't exist before and you get to a moment like you had on Saturday. But it doesn't happen unless you've got the athlete who is able to do it. You know, speed at ground level remains a constant. He's still got to make all those paces. Right. He's got to cross the line in the time that he has to cross the line in. And as anyone who's tried to run a 250 kilometer or a 434 mile will know, uh, it's, um, you know, it's pretty astonishing what he, what he did. One of the things that I was surprised by in uh, one of your pieces for The New Yorker, Ed, was... The idea that Kipchoge is 34, but some people actually think he's 40. Yeah, that's not that's not in doubt. I mean, he's mu he's much much older than he, he says he is. Yeah. Speaking of things that it's like odd that we don't know it with with precision, like when I before actually 
reading that that piece and just looking at the video, I was like, this guy like looks kind of old. He does not have the aspect of a young man in like <laughs> the 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 kind of his athletic prime. He looks, I don't want to say like grizzled. He doesn't look like he's elderly or something, but it does make you think like what if <laughs> this effort was happening when he was 24 or 25? Like he is obviously an incredible, like historically amazing athlete. But that part was just like crazy to me. Well, maybe he's recalibrating what we think about the aging process. So maybe his best years were not when he was 24 and when he was 25, in the marathon at least. Maybe his best years are when he's around 40. I don't know. Maybe if you live in a certain way and you train in this very steady and methodical way for a long time, maybe this is when you reach your peak. It's one of the reasons why it's slightly frustrating to me that there isn't more honesty about his age, because I think it would totally rework how the world thought about aging. Can we talk about Bridget Koske, who shattered the limits in the women's marathon? Paula Radcliffe's record had stood for a very long time. It was uh, since 2003, London. She ran a 215.25. Koske ran a 214.04 in uh, Chicago on Sunday. Ed, what do we know about her? And was this kind of a shocking uh, event? Uh, was it shocking that she broke the record or was it just shocking that she broke it by 80 seconds? I think it's pretty shocking all around. The I was talking in the wake of Kipchoge's run to one of the organizers of the London Marathon. And I said, wouldn't it be cool if you could have all this attention, the millions of people around the world watching for an event that celebrated women's running? Um, it just happens that there isn't really a neat number that you could coalesce around. But say you did it for like 2.15, you know, so you had to break Paula Radcliffe's record and go sub 2.15. You know, it might not have the same allure, but, you know, maybe there's a way of doing it. That, because, you know, there has been this heap of money and attention on these two breaking two-hour attempts. We both agree that would be kind of cool if you could get enough interest in it. And then the next day, bang goes 2.15 <laughs> in an open race. And she said afterward, 2.10 is possible. Right. I mean, a couple of things just give me a tiny bit of pause here. And I, and I hope I'm not, I don't want to detract unduly because it was, a, you know, it's a remarkable time. It's, I mean, and the way that she did it, absolutely, you know, destroying the field was remarkable. And you don't want to impugn clean athletes, but her management group, have been involved in numerous doping scandals. There's no getting away from that. So there is always going to be a question mark around a Rosa athlete who suddenly turns up with an incredible time. Ross Tucker wrote, that question always has to be asked, not about Koske, but generally, that question always has to be asked. Sport is at an all-time low for integrity, and every smokescreen and mirror lowers it further, I think, even when there's nothing there. I think it's always worth having in the back of your mind that a lot of the anti-doping stuff is fairly porous in Kenya, and a lot of how we trust athletes has to do with what we know about where they train and who they train with. So with Kipchoge's group, there has never been a sniff of a doping scandal within about 100 miles of this very austere and you know reliable training group. And having been there and spent a lot of time there, I mean, I would honestly, I would drop dead if he failed a test. You know, knowing his coach and just knowing the system in which he operates. Not to say that you know you can always be wrong, but I would be very surprised. And everything you just said, Ed, just kind of raises for me this question of records being uh, a cultural construct. Like, 
why would it bother us if it was found that somebody who broke a record was doping? Is it the kind of notion that it's dishonest? I mean, we just went through this whole long spiel about all the reasons that Kipchoge, who we're celebrating, you know, is not officially record eligible because they did, you know, we're not going to call it doping, but they did all of these things that are not illegal, that are not allowed in an open race. I mean, I guess we know about all of them, but we don't know how much the shoes help him. I guess we don't know precisely how much that formation helped him. But, um, you know, what is a record? What isn't a record? What's eligible? What isn't eligible? It's like it's just based on what we happen to feel or or decide or, or think. There's no clear line. Yeah, Kipchoge wasn't trying to fool anyone to think that he'd run a world record. Absolutely not. And he knew that there was only one way to run 26.2 miles in less than two hours, which was to have this slightly artificial setup. But he wasn't kidding anyone about what he needed to do to to do that. I think where it gets, you know, where we do feel, you know, cheated is when there's subterfuge and you know, performance enhancing drugs are involved. I mean, I think that's really straightforward. One of the things that struck me after the Ineos 159 Elliot Kipchoge's run in Vienna was that it's a terrible time for track, for the sport of athletics. You know, the world championships in Doha were watched by about 12 people. Um, it was, you know, in the middle of the night in this sweaty, hot stadium where they had to pump in the air conditioning. You know, Salazar got his comeuppance and has been banned for four years. It's a niche sport anyway, and people's trust in it is very low. Isn't it somewhat ironic that this really artificial kind of stunt has done more to enthuse people about running than any number of official and sanctioned events has done for perhaps the last decade? That's how I felt about it. You know, it was a stunt. It was an exhibition. And I just got a note from the TV producers um, who I work with calling the race saying, you know, it's gone out to 200 countries. It's possible that 500 million people saw some part of Elliot Kipchoge's run. I mean, the numbers just on YouTube were extraordinary, you know, and look at any major marathon. Not that many people are watching it. Right. And that's what really struck me in watching just the last few meters of the race. This felt organic. It felt genuine. There were fans, unlike in the attempt in Italy, which was staged on this racetrack, this this auto racing track. And, yeah. and, and it was quiet. Kipchoge, you reported, said that he wanted the noise. He wanted people there. But what struck me more than anything, Ed, were the faces of the pace setters behind him yeah. as they approached the finish line. And these were these were world-class marathoners. I mean, these were famous runners behind him that they had recruited to be part of this effort. Everybody was genuinely happy for this accomplishment, that they were part of something that changed human history. And that really was touching more than anything else. It was one of the most moving pieces of sport I've ever seen. And I w- was not expecting perhaps to be moved in quite the same way, partly because I didn't know whether he was going to do it or not. But but that moment when he peels away from the pace setters and sprints towards the line and you can see them in the background whooping and, you know, raising their arms and smiling. And then he gets sort of born aloft like a, you know, like someone who's just won the 1930 Olympics, <laughs> you know, like on people's shoulders. It felt very sort of nostalgic and old school. It was such a touching moment. 
I really sense that it's mostly about the guy that did it. So the two-hour barrier broken by someone else, even in somewhat similar circumstances, I don't think would have created that moment. People love this man for, you know, he, he is very humble, but also generous. I've known him for a long time, and he is as he seems. He is a, he is a, he is a special human being, you know, and you don't get them very often in sports. And I think that's what, you know, Matt Centrovitz, Olympic champion, the Ingebrigtsen brothers who are huge stars in Norway, you know, what like a ton of really sort of garlanded Kenyan and Ethiopian Japanese runners. That's what they were responding to. This guy who has wanted this for a, for a hell of a long time and getting it and watching him sort of sear his name into, into the history books. I think that was really, really special, that moment. Ed Caesar writes for The New Yorker. We'll link to his stories about Elliot Kipchoge and the two sub-two-hour marathon. He's also the author of Two Hours, The Quest to Run the Impossible Marathon. Ed, thank you so much for coming on the show. My pleasure. Now it is time for After Balls. Stefan, did you see what happened in the London game this week? Well, I, mean, I could guess a lot of things happened in the London game this week. <laughs> no, did you see the thing that happened in the London game? The no, thing that happened obviously the, not. The thing that happened in the London game was that the Panthers had a fair catch kick. You know, I did see that. Okay, you do know the thing that happened. In the I London do know game. the thing that happened in the London game, and Thank I should have realized that that was the thing that you were referring to without yeah, so the, saying it. So the Panthers caught a fair catch on the on a punt, and then, as rarely happens, the first time this happened since two thousand and thirteen. In the NFL, the rules stipulate that you're allowed to get a free kick for three points, no rush. It's a very odd scene. Announcers are always mystified slash delighted by it. The Panthers uh, did not make their attempt at the fair catch kick. Nobody really ever makes it. It hasn't been made since 1976. And it was only a 60-yarder. Should have made it. Should have made it. 60. That's easy. But there was a 62-yard field goal made over the weekend. There was. Fair catch kicks have been made in the NFL before a handful of times. The first guy to make one was George Abramson, who played for the Packers. And as happened back in the in these days, this was in 1925, he was a guard, a tackle, and a kicker. Of course. And the thing I liked about George Abramson in reading his Wikipedia page was uh, this line. Abramson was Jewish and was said to speak Yiddish with a Jewish teammate on the field during games in college. George Abramson, Yiddish speaker, kicker. fair catch, kick, maker. Stefan, what is your George Abramson? Well, when it comes to romance novels about the NFL, you're probably only familiar with one, a gronking to remember the erotic fan fiction about Rob Gronkowski that made headlines a few years ago. But it turns out that football is playing a central role in legit romance novels, and the main plot line is chronic traumatic encephalopathy. The emergence of CTE in romance was chronicled in a recent piece for the book review magazine Kirkus by Jennifer Prokop, who hosts a podcast called Fated Mates. Prokop says that romance is at the forefront of CTE in fiction and that she found three recent novels with CTE plot lines. Female protagonists concerned about long-term brain damage in their NFL or NHL playing significant others. Helen reached into her bowl of popcorn, stuffed a handful in her mouth, and crunched mindlessly as she reviewed the National Hockey League's concussion protocols. Really want to read that, don't you? Ruby Lang writes in her 2016 novel, Hard Knocks. The book's main character is Dr. Helen Frobisher. In the ER one night, Helen treats 
Adam Magnus, the enforcer for the Oregon Wolves of the NHL. They have a one-night stand, and then when Frobisher, whose father, a one-time boxer, is dying from degenerative heart disease, she writes an op-ed calling for a ban on hockey. She and Magnus wind up as adversaries in the public square, but lovers in the bedroom. She wished she had never seen him play. She wished she'd never seen him take off his helmet to reveal his dark hair with sweat, the streak of blood on his forehead. Does love triumph over CTE? I don't know because I couldn't read the end of the book on Amazon. In Alicia Rye's novel, The Right Swipe, Samson Lima is a former linebacker for the Portland Brewers who had quit the league mid-game kind of like Vontae Davis. Lima's father and uncle had played in the NFL. They both died of degenerative brain disease. A decade after a one-night stand, Samson runs into business executive Rhiannon Hunter at a conference. Note the smooth pivot here from brain injury to sexy talk. The concussions hadn't been fun, but it had been the countless sub-concussive hits that had truly freaked Samson out. A person could still get up and play after a hit like that, their body on autopilot. Just like Samson could force himself to finish the speech he'd written and prepped in his hotel room last night without taking his gaze off the woman who was standing close enough to the stage that the light exposed her. That face, the face of the one and only woman he'd ever met through his phone, the face he'd touched and had kissed, the face that had haunted his dreams for months, so much that he now thought about that night as that night in caps. She'd worn lip balm that night. Peppermint had never been an aphrodisiac, but it was now. The right swipe includes a lot of criticism of the NFL and its CTE settlement. Fear of brain disease is also a major arc in another book, Fumbled by Alexa Martin, a decade since getting pregnant in high school. Strip club hostess Poppy Patterson reconnects with her son's father, star wide receiver TK Moore of the Denver Mustangs. In one steamy scene, Poppy tells TK that after seeing TK knocked unconscious on the field, she can't watch him play anymore. When I heard that hit and saw you go down so freaking hard, all I could think was we just found each other again and it could all end because of a fucking game. I climb on top of him when I feel him start to stiffen again. And if that wasn't bad enough, I looked to my side and saw Ace with tears in his eyes, that's the sun, as his hero wobbled to the sideline and the guys behind us rattled off all of the ways you'll probably die because of football. It was like a bucket of ice water being dumped on my head. I'm not going to die because of football, he says, with an authority he doesn't have. The helmets are better now than ever, and the league is really coming down on concussion safety. I'll be fine. You don't know that. I run my fingers through his hair. I don't want you to make you choose us over football, but I also don't want you to make me watch you go out there and get tackled into an early grave. Jennifer Prokop writes that romance generally doesn't get enough credit for the ways it explores how people can change patriarchal systems, and the NFL is a patriarchal system, she says. By writing plots around degenerative brain disease, novelists, quote, aren't just exploring how CTE impacts individual men, she says. They're asking how Americans change the way we think about CTE and youth sports. The message to the predominantly female readership of romance novels, then, is this. Collision sports are bad. Don't let your kids play them. Josh, what's your George Abramson? LSU beat Florida on Saturday night in Baton Rouge at Tiger Stadium. It was a exciting game, and the crowd was enthused, as the crowd often is at LSU and other college football venues. One of the metrics that's used to uh, assess crowd excitement 
is press box shaking. A lot of the time when a game is deemed to be particularly exciting with a particularly enthused crowd, the press box is said to shake. And it's not just at LSU. Um, I found a bunch of tweets uh, recently. Pretty good press box shake in Kyle Field as the Aggies, Texas A&M emerge from the tunnel. That didn't work out so well for Texas A&M this weekend. Uh, somebody else writes, I never felt the press box shake inside Minute Maid Park before. Um, that was a few days ago when the Astros beat the Yankees. Love to feel the press box shake because of the base on a power play announcement. Uh, that was a hockey reporter, Bruins reporter for the Boston Herald. Uh, it's not necessarily just the the crowd. Sometimes it can be the base on a power play announcement. As looking for the history of this, the press box shaking at various venues and sporting events, I found one uh, story about how an organist for the St. Louis Blues would make the press box shake. If you want to add that to your list of possible press box shakery. The first reference that I could find to a press box shaking was in the Tyler Morning Telegraph of Tyler, Texas, October 24th, 1931. He hit one Panther yesterday, and we felt the press box shake a little. The defensive left end it was, and the first part of that guy's anatomy that hit terra firma was the back of his neck. Johnny certainly blazed a great path for his mates to follow, and his man never escaped him. Great work, Johnny. Keep it up. Are you sure that wasn't from a romance novel? From <laughs> no mention of CTE or part stiffening or anything like that. That's uh, that's all I got for you. Then there was a paper from Vancouver, British Columbia, in 1939, when Colonel John Park, our rotund racing reporter, breathes, he- breathes heavily. The press box shakes like an aspen leaf and gives the other correspondents the impression that they are riding a recalcitrant Mustang. I think they were just giving Colonel John Park a hard time. It's kind of mean, actually. Don't do that. Then there was a story from the AP in 1948. There was a tie game that year between Notre Dame and USC, 14-14 in LA. And this time the press box shook because of an earthquake after the game. Legit shaking. High on the rim of the stadium, the press box seemed to waltz dizzily back and forth. The chalk white stripes on the field below seemingly, and perhaps they did, to move in crazy reverse review. Um, Then I got one from 1961 at a Lehigh-Lafayette game. It got so bad once that Clyde Lindsley, Lehigh publicity man, announced over the press box public address system that there was no danger of the press box failing, no matter what everybody was thinking. As if he knew. The weirdest one that I found, a thing that you wouldn't predict would make the press box shake. This is a UPI story from Champaign, Illinois. Fans keeping time to the beat of a Beach Boys performance caused the stadium press box to shake during Sunday's Farm Aid Benefit concert. The Beach Boys, appearing midway through the concert, performed California Girls, Help Me Rhonda, and Surfing USA. Veterans of the press box, which was perched on the top of the grandstands at the University of Illinois Stadium, said they had never before felt the press box shake in such a fashion, which is a pretty ringing indictment of the University of Illinois football program, I must say. Tony Lawrence, a security guard at the press box. No, I never felt it move like that before. The press box had not shaken noticeably before the Beach Boys' appearance. So I wanted to try to find an example, Stefan, of the press box shaking and then actually collapsing um, because all the stories are like, the press box has never actually collapsed. It's not in danger of collapsing. I found a story from 1938 in the Montgomery Advertiser, uh, Selma, Alabama. The headline, Press Box Collapses, Loop Prexy Drenched, Ball Game Deadlocked. (laughs) 
Only a cloudburst could cool off the red-hot Pensacola and Salma ball clubs here this afternoon, and 350 persons were thoroughly drenched and frightened during the storm that swept away a section of the outfield fence and sent the press box roof crashing on to the playing field with the ball game deadlocked at 2-all and Salma coming into bat in the ninth. The storm broke. Subsequently, shifting winds inundated every available nook and cranny in the Royal Field Stadium as the crowd scurried in vain to get away from the driving rain. League president, the prexy of the headline, Stuart X. Stevenson, who is here to discuss final plans with Wally Daschle and Harmon Carter for the All-Star Game in Pensacola, was saved from a wet ride back to Montgomery by obtaining some clothing from Salma's baseball president. This story just keeps getting better and better. All with smiles officially when... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> when Farner Scale, official scorer, showed up in the excitement with his records protected from the downpour. Man, just think what it might have happened if the records had not been protected from the downpour. Baseball cares about its records, Josh. They do. So that's what I got. If you have a, uh, an example of a press box collapsing, and it could have collapsed in a way that it caused grievous harm to the members of the press and the people seated below. Let me know. Our email address, tangup at slate.com, which leads us into our credits. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us again at hangup at slate.com. If you're still here and you're interested in more Hang Up and Listen, we have more Hang Up and Listen for you. You just have to be a Slate Plus member. In our bonus segment this week, we talked with Ethan Strauss of The Athletic about the fate of the NBA domestically. The NBA has seen, I don't have the the numbers right in front of me, but uh, declines in local viewership over the last half decade. And it's it's mostly been propped up in the playoffs by the Warriors and the LeBron Cavs, and that seems to have ended. And there's this there's this trope of the NBA so young that owns the future and it's on the rise. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. For Stephen Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. <laughs>